Hello, and welcome to Harry Potter and the Methods of Rationality, the podcast. Written by Eliezer Yudkowsky, read by Ineos Brodsky, based on the works of J.K. Rowling. Second part of Chapter 84, Taboo Trade-Offs, Aftermath 2. The holding cell, well to the center of magical law enforcement, was luxuriously appointed. More a remark on what adult wizards took for granted than any special feeling toward prisoners. There was a self-reclining, self-rocking chair with plush, richly textured, self-warming cushions. There was a bookcase containing random books rescued from a bargain bin and a full shelf of ancient magazines, including one from 1883. As for toiletries, well, it wasn't exactly luxurious, but there was a spell on the room which put all that business on hold. You weren't to go anywhere that the watching Auror couldn't see you. But aside from that, it was quite a pleasant little cell. The defense professor of Hogwarts was being detained. Not arrested, not even intimidated. There was no evidence to indict him. Except that a terrible and unusual crime had been committed at the Hogwarts School of Witchcraft and Wizardry. And going by previous occasions, the odds were five to one that the current defense professor was tangled up in it somehow. To this must be added the fact that nobody in the DMLE even knew who the defense professor was, and that the man had literally sneezed at all attempts to uncover his true identity. Why, no, they hadn't released Quirinus Quirrell back to Hogwarts just yet. Let us repeat this for emphasis. The defense professor was being detained in a cell. The defense professor was staring at the watching Auror and humming. The defense professor had not spoken a single word since he arrived in this particular cell. He has only been humming. The humming started out as a simple children's lullaby, the one that in Muggle Britain begins lullaby and goodnight. This tune was hummed, without variation, over and over for seven minutes to establish the underlying pattern. Then began the elaborations upon the theme. Phrases hummed too slow, with long pauses in between, so that the listener's mind helplessly waits and waits for the next note. The next... Phrase. And then, when the next phrase comes, it is so out of key so unbelievably awfully out of key, not just out of key for the previous phrases, but sung at a pitch which does not correspond to any key, that you would have to believe this person had spent hours deliberately practicing their humming just to acquire such perfect anti-pitch. It bears the same semblance to music as the awful dead voice of a Dementor bears to human speech. And this horrible, horrible humming is impossible to ignore. It is similar to a known lullaby, but it departs from that pattern unpredictably. It sets up expectations and then violates them, never in any constant pattern that would permit the humming to fade into the background. The only possible explanation for how this mode of humming came to exist is that it was deliberately designed by some unspeakably cruel genius who woke up one day feeling bored with ordinary torture who decided to handicap himself and find out whether he could break someone's sanity just by humming at them. The Auror had been listening to this unimaginably dreadful humming for four hours. 
while being stared at by a huge, cold, lethal presence that feels equally horrible whether he looks at it directly or lets it hover at the corner of his vision. The humming stopped. There was a long wait. Time enough for false hope to rise and be squashed down by the memory of previous disappointments. And then, as the interval lengthened and lengthened, that hope rose again unstoppably. The humming began once more. The auror cracked. From his belt, the auror took a mirror, tapped it once, and then said, This is Junior Auror Urgent Altonate. I'm calling in code RJL20 on cell 3. Code RJL20? The mirror said in surprised tones. There was a sound of pages being flipped, and then... You want to be relieved because a prisoner is absenting psychological warfare and succeeding? Amelia Bones really is quite intelligent. What did the prisoner say to you? This question is not part of procedure RJL20, but unfortunately, Amelia Bones has failed to include an explicit instruction that the commanding officer should not ask. He's... said the Auror and glanced back at the cell. The defense professor was now leaning back in his chair, looking quite relaxed. He was staring at me and humming. There was a pause. The mirror spoke again. And you're calling in an RJL-20 over that? You sure you're not just trying to get out of watching him? Amelia Bones is surrounded by idiots. You don't understand. It was really awful humming. The mirror transmitted a sound of muffled laughter in the background, <laughs> sounding like it was coming from more than one person. Then speech again. Mr. Attorney, if you don't want to be busted to junior or second class, I suggest you buckle down and get back to work. Strike that. A crisp voice said, sounding slightly remote due to its distance from the mirror. Which is why Amelia Bones often sits in on a coordination center of the DMLE while doing her ministry-required paperwork. Or Altenay, said the crisp voice, seeming to approach closer to the mirror. You will be relieved shortly. Or Ben Gutierrez, the procedure for RJL20 does not say that you ask why. It says that you relieve an Auror who calls it in. If I find Aurors to be abusing it, I will modify the procedure to prevent its abuse. The mirror cut off abruptly. The Auror turned back to look triumphantly at where the current defense professor of Hogwarts was leaning back in his cushioned chair. That man then spoke the first words that had left his lips since he entered the cell. Goodbye, Mr. Altune. A few minutes later, the door to the detention cell opened and in walked a gray-haired woman, dressed in the crimson-tinged robes of an Auror without any sign of rank or other ornamentation, carrying a black leather folder under her left arm. You're relieved, the old woman said abruptly. There was a brief delay while Auror Altune tried to explain what had been happening. This was cut short by a nod and a stark simple finger pointing out the door. Good evening, Madam Director, said the defense professor. Amelia Bones did not acknowledge the statement, but sat down abruptly in the vacated chair. The old witch opened the black folder and her gaze moved down to the parchments therein. 
Possible hints to the identity of the current Hogwarts defense professor, as compiled by Auror Robards. The title parchment was flipped, turned aside. The defense professor said that he was sorted into Slytherin, claimed that his family was killed by Voldemort, said he had studied at a martial arts center in Muggle Asia, which was destroyed by Voldemort. A request filed with the Department of International Magical Cooperation identifies this incident as the Oni Affair of 1969. Another parchment was flipped aside. It also seems this defense professor gave a most stirring speech to his students just before last Yule, castigating the previous generation for their disunity against the Death Eaters. The old witch looked up from the leather folder. Madame Longbottom was rather taken with it, and insisted that I read the entire thing. The argument struck me as familiar, though I could not place it at the time. But then, of course, I had thought you dead. The chief law enforcement officer of Magical Britain was now gazing sharply at the current defense professor of Hogwarts, across the pane of spell-reinforced glass separating them. The man in the cell returned the gaze equably, without apparent alarm. I shall not name any names, but I shall tell a story and see if it sounds familiar. Amelia Bones looked back down, turning to the next parchment. Born 1927, entered Hogwarts in 1938, sorted into Slytherin, graduated 1945, went on a graduation tour abroad and disappeared while visiting Albania. Presumed dead until 1970, then he returned to Magical Britain just as suddenly, without any explanation for the missing 25 years. He remained estranged from his family and friends, living in isolation. In 1971, while visiting Diagon Alley, he fended off an attempt by Bellatrix Black to kidnap the daughter of the Minister of Magic, and used the Killing Curse to slay two of the three Death Eaters accompanying her. Beyond this, all Britain knows the story. Need I continue it? The old witch looked up from the folder again. Very well. There was a trial in the Wizengamot during which this young man was exonerated for his use of the killing curse, not least due to the efforts of his grandmother, the lady of his house. He was reconciled with his family, and they held a house gathering to welcome his return. The guest of honor arrived at that gathering to find his entire family slain by Death Eaters, even down to the house elves, and that he himself, of Cadet Line, was now the last remaining scion of a most ancient house. The defense professor had not reacted at all to any of this, except that his eyes had half-closed, as though in weariness. The young man took up his family's seat in the Wizengamot, becoming among the most steadfast voices against you-know-who. Several times he led forces against the Death Eaters, fighting with skillful tactics and extraordinary power. People began to speak of him as the next Dumbledore. It was thought that he might become Minister of Magic after the Dark Lord fell. On the 3rd of July, 1973, he failed to appear at a key Wizengamot vote, and was never heard from again. We assumed you-know-who had killed him. It was a grave blow to all of us, and matters went much worse from that day on. The old witch's gaze was questioning. I mourned you myself. What happened? The defense professor's shoulders moved lightly, a small shrug. You make many assumptions. For myself, I would believe that man died years ago. But if that man is nonetheless alive, then it is clear he does not wish that fact announced, and has reasons enough for silence. That man was once of some help to you, it seems. The defense professor's lips curved in a cynical smile. But I am no longer surprised when gratitude is fleeting. 
is there yet more that you would demand from him? The old witch leaned back in her auror's monitoring chair, looking rather startled, maybe even hurt. No, she said after a moment. Her fingers tapped the leather folder. Nervously, you might have thought, if you had believed that Amelia Bones could ever be nervous. But your house, there are not many ancient houses remaining. It shall matter little to this country whether eight ancient houses remain or seven. The old witch sighed. What does Dumbledore think of this? The man in the detention cell shook his head. He does not know who I am and promised not to inquire. The old witch's eyebrows rose. How did he identify you to the Hogwarts wards, then? A slight smile. The headmaster drew a circle and told Hogwarts that he who stood within was the defense professor. Speaking of which, I am missing my classes, Director Bones. You seem to rest sometimes in a peculiar manner. This has also been reported, and you seem to be resting more and more frequently as time goes on. The old witch's fingers tapped the leather folder again. I cannot recall reading of such a symptom, but when one hears of such a thing, one imagines dark wizards fought and terrible curses received. The defense professor remained expressionless. Do you require a healer's help? Her own mask had slipped, clearly showing the pain in her eyes. Is there anything at all that can be done for you? I agreed to teach defense at Hogwarts. Draw your own conclusions, madam. And I am missing my classes, of which there are not many left. I would return to Hogwarts now. When Hermione woke the third time, though it felt like she'd only closed her eyes for a moment, the sun was even lower in the sky, almost fully set. She felt a little more alive and, strangely, even more exhausted. This time it was Professor Flitwick who was standing next to her bed and shaking her shoulder, a tray of steaming food floating next to him. For some reason she thought Harry Potter ought to be leaning over her bedside, but he wasn't there. Had she dreamed that? She couldn't remember dreaming. It developed, according to Professor Flitwick, that Hermione had missed dinner in the Great Hall and was now being woken to eat, and then she could go back to the Ravenclaw dorm and her own bed to sleep the rest of the night. She ate in silence. There was a part of her that wanted to ask Professor Flitwick whether he thought she'd been memory-charmed, or she'd tried to kill Draco Malfoy of her own will. Like she remembered doing but most of her was afraid to find out. Afraid to find out was a warning sign, according to Harry Potter and his books. But her mind felt tired, bruised, and she couldn't muster the strength to override it. When she and Professor Flitwick left the infirmary, they found Harry Potter sitting cross-legged outside the door, quietly reading a psychology textbook. I'll take her from here, said the boy who lived. Professor McGonagall said it would be all right. Professor Flitwick seemed to accept this and departed after a stern look at both of them. She couldn't imagine what the stern look was supposed to say, unless it was, Don't try to kill any more students. The footsteps of Professor Flitwick faded, and the two of them stood alone outside the doors of the infirmary. She looked at the green eyes of the boy who lived, the mess of hair that didn't quite obscure the scar on his forehead. 
she looked upon the face of the boy who'd given all his money to save her without a second thought. There were feelings inside her, guilt, shame, embarrassment, other things as well, but no words. There was nothing she knew how to say. So, Harry said abruptly, I did a quick skim through my psychology books to see what they said about post-traumatic stress disorder. The old books said you should talk about the experience immediately afterward with a counselor. The newer research says that when they actually ran experiments, it turned out that talking about it immediately afterward made it worse. Apparently, what you really ought to do is run with your mind's natural impulse to repress the memories and just not think about it for a while. It was so normal for the way she and Harry usually talked that she felt a sudden burning in her throat. We don't have to talk about it. That was what Harry had just said, more or less. It felt like cheating, maybe even like a lie. Nothing was normal. Everything wrong was still horribly wrong. Everything left unsaid still needed to be said. Okay said Hermione, because there wasn't anything else to say. Anything else at all. I'm sorry I wasn't waiting when you woke up, Harry said as they started to walk. Madame Pomfrey wouldn't let me in, so I just stayed out here. He gave a small, sad-looking shrug. I suppose I should be out there trying to run damage control on public relations, but... Honestly, I've never been good at that. I just end up speaking sharply at people. How bad is it? She thought her voice should have come out in a whisper, a croak, but it didn't. Well, the thing you've got to understand, Hermione, is that you had a lot of defenders at breakfast time today, but everyone on your side was... making stuff up. Draco tried to kill you first, things like that. It was Granger versus Malfoy, that's how people saw it. Like a seesaw where pushing his side down meant pushing your side up. I told them you were probably both innocent, that you'd both been memory-charmed. They didn't listen. Both sides treated me like a traitor trying to play the middle. And then people heard that Draco had testified under Veritaserum that he'd been trying to help you before the battle. Stop making that expression, Hermione. You didn't actually do anything to him. Anyway, all people understood was that the pro-Malfoy faction had been right and the pro-Granger faction had been wrong. I told them that when the truth came out later, they'd be embarrassed. How bad is it? She said again. This time, her voice did come out weaker. Remember Ash's conformity experiment? Harry said, turning his head to give her a serious look. Her mind was slow to remember for a few seconds, which frightened her. But then the reference came back. In 1951, Solomon Ash had taken some experimental subjects, and each one had been put among a row of other people who looked like them, seeming like other experimental subjects, but actually confederates of the experimenter. They'd shown a reference line on a screen, labeled X, next to three other lines, labeled A, B, and C. The experimenter had asked which line X was the same length as. The correct answer had obviously been C. The other subjects, the confederates, had one after another said that X was the same length as B. The real subject had been put second to last in the order so as not to arouse suspicion by being last. The test had been to see whether the real subject would conform to the standard wrong answer of B 
or voice the obviously correct answer of C. 75% of the subjects had conformed at least once. A third of the subjects had conformed more than half the time. Some had reported afterward actually believing that X was the same length as B. And that had been in cases where the subjects hadn't known any of the Confederates. If you put people around others who belong to the same group as them, like someone in a wheelchair next to other people in a wheelchair, the conformity effect got even stronger. Hermione had a sickening feeling where this was going. I remember. I gave the Chaos Legion anti-conformity training, you know. I had each Legionnaire stand in the middle and say, Twice two is four! Or, Grass is green! While everyone else in the Chaos Legion called them idiots or sneered at them. Alan Flint did really good sneers. Or even just gave them blank looks and then walked away. The thing you've got to remember is, only the Chaos Legion has ever practiced anything like that. Nobody else in Hogwarts even knows what conformity is. Harry. Her voice was wobbling. How bad is it? Harry gave another sad-looking shrug. Everyone in the second year and above, since they don't know you. Everyone in Dragon Army. All of Slytherin, of course. And, well, most of the rest of Magical Britain, too, I think. Remember, Lucius Malfoy controls the Daily Prophet. Everyone? Her limbs started to feel cold, like she'd just gotten out of an unheated swimming pool. What people really believe doesn't feel like a belief. It feels like the way the world is. You and I are standing in a private little bubble of the universe where Hermione Granger got memory charmed. Everyone else is living in the world where Hermione Granger tried to murder Draco Malfoy. If Ernie McMillan... Her breath caught in her throat. Captain McMillan... Thinks he's ethically prohibited from being your friend now. Well... He's trying to do the right thing as he understands it, in the world he thinks he lives in. Harry's eyes were very serious. Hermione, you've told me a lot of times that I look down too much on other people. But if I expected too much of them, if I expected people to get things right, I really would hate them then. Idealism aside, Hogwarts students don't actually know enough about cognitive science to take responsibility for how their own minds work. It's not their fault they're crazy. Harry's voice was strangely gentle, almost like an adult's. I know it's going to be harder on you than it would be on me. But remember, eventually the real culprit gets nailed. The truth comes out. Everyone who is confidently wrong gets embarrassed. And if the real culprit doesn't get caught? Or if it turns out to be me after all. Then you can leave Hogwarts and go to the Salem Witches Institute in America. Leave Hogwarts? She'd never even thought of that possibility except as an ultimate punishment. I... Hermione, I think you might want to do that anyway. Hogwarts isn't a castle. It's insanity with walls. You have got other options. I'll... I'll have to think about it. Harry nodded. At least nobody's going to try hexing you, not after what the headmaster said at dinner tonight. Oh, and Ron Weasley came up to me, looking very serious, and told me that if I saw you first, that I should tell you that he's sorry for having thought badly of you, and he'll never speak ill of you again. Ron believes I'm innocent? Well, he doesn't think you're 
innocent, per se. The whole Ravenclaw dorm went silent as the two of them walked in, staring at them, staring at her. She'd had nightmares like this. And then, one by one, people looked away from her. Penelope Clearwater, the fifth-year prefect in charge of first years, looked away slowly and deliberately, turning her head to face in another direction. Sue Lee and Lisa Turpin and Michael Corner, all sitting at a table together, all of whom she'd helped with their homework at one time or another, all looked away, their faces suddenly nervous the moment she tried to catch their eyes. A third-year witch named Letitia Randall, whom Spew had twice saved from Slytherin bullies, quickly bent back over her desk and started doing homework again. Mandy Brocklehurst looked away from her. If Hermione didn't burst into tears then, it was only because she'd expected it, had played it out in her mind over and over again. At least people weren't screaming at her or shoving her or hexing her. They were just looking away. Hermione walked very straight up to the staircase that led toward the first-year girl's dorm. She didn't see Padma Patil or Anthony Goldstein looking at her, those two lone heads turning to track her as she left. From behind her, she heard Harry Potter saying, in a very calm tone, Now, eventually the truth's going to come out, you all. So if you're all that confident she's guilty, can I ask you all to sign this paper right here, saying that if she later turns out to be innocent, she gets to say I told you so, and then hold it over you for the rest of your lives? Step on up, one and all. Don't be cowards. If you really believe, you shouldn't be afraid to bet. She was halfway up the stairs when she realized that there would be other girls inside her dorm room, too. End second part of chapter 84. Thank you to the following people. Hermione Granger, Anonymous. Amelia Bones by Melissa Kessler. This chapter's original text, production notes, and attribution links along with archives and much more, can be found at hpmorpodcast.com. If you would like to learn more about the art of rationality, please visit lesswrong.com, an online community of aspiring rationalists founded by Eliezer Yudkowsky. Some sound effects used are courtesy of the Free Sound Project. The music used is Catch That Goblin by Skaven. Thank you for listening and come back next week for the conclusion to Chapter 84, Taboo Trade-Offs, Aftermath 2.